Is price gouging wrong? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Mike Munger. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Mike Munger. Mike is an economist and a professor of political science at Duke University. He has taught at Dartmouth College, University of Texas, and University of North Carolina. His primary research focus is on the functioning of markets, regulation, and government institutions. He has been published in numerous journals and is the author of many things, including his newest book, released in 2019, Is Capitalism Sustainable? Which was actually the question of the last podcast I recorded with him. I highly recommend the book and also, of course, listening to the episode we did together. Mike, welcome back to The Curious Task. Pleasure. Thank you, Alex. So, Mike, just like last time, we'll start with a question. We'll go wherever the conversation takes us. Our question today is something that has been on a lot of people's minds and social media news feeds as well, uh, especially throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. It's certainly brought out a lot of strong statements from government officials. The question is, is price gouging wrong? But before we jump right to you saying no, <laughs> I'd like to start off a little bit with a few other things. Let, let's actually zoom out a little bit and start with some basic economics, if you'd like to help us out with that. What happens when we see in the marketplace where prices are, are driven up or, or down? Like, Let's talk a bit about demand shocks and supply shocks and how those function. Before we get into price gouging specifically, what's happening when we see radical price shifts? One of the interesting things about economics that's focused on markets is that there's an advantage that I think not many people recognize because it's not often communicated by the academics who teach about markets. It's a system for coordinating diverse plans and purposes. So one of the key things about Austrian economics in particular is the recognition of difference. So let me say a little bit about that. We tend to think in economics class, we'll draw supply and demand and we say, okay, everybody agrees on price. The key thing is that every agreement on price requires a disagreement about value. Every agreement about price requires a disagreement about value. If you buy it from me, we agree on a price of $7. You must think it's worth more than $7, and I think it's worth less than $7. Mm -hmm. So what price does is, is give you a signal about how much other people value something. And you don't need to know who those people are. All you need to know is what is the price. That's the interesting thing about it is that people have different plans and purposes. They go to the grocery store. Let's just imagine they go to the grocery store and say, I'm going to buy as much toilet paper as they have. So I get there and the price of toilet paper is 50 cents a roll. Now, what price is telling me is nobody else needs this. Take all you want. Right. And so I do. So the price is a decentralized mechanism for communicating information about how much other people value something. Now, suppose that one of two things happen. And this is important, Alex. I, need, I don't need to know which it is. But either a bunch of other people want this stuff. Uh, they didn't get together and have a meeting. For whatever reason, a bunch of other people want this stuff. Or somewhere in the world, there is a reason why people are having trouble making or delivering this stuff. Right. Either of the, and those are really different things. And both of them basically could be almost anywhere in the world or so in the United States or in Canada. So there's a, we have these national or international markets. Somewhere in that market, a lot of other people want and need this stuff. Or it's harder to make and deliver the stuff. And I don't know which. All that happens is I go in and now the price, instead of 50 cents a roll, it's $3 a roll. Right. That tells me, wait, 
be a moral person. Leave some for someone else. Other people need this. They may need it more than you do. How do I know they need it more than you do? Well, ask yourself, how much am I willing to pay? Suppose I was willing to pay $2. That meant I would buy it at 50 cents a roll. I'm not willing to pay $3 a roll. Somebody else needs it more than I do. So a decentralized price mechanism gives people both the information and the incentive to act morally. If someone else needs this more than I do, I will leave it for them. Maybe it's the person behind me in line. Maybe it's the person in Manitoba. But somebody else needs this more than I do. So with, with that introduction, let me go back to your question. What happens when the price goes up because there's scarcity? Scarcity means other people want it or we're having a hard time obtaining it. Scarcity could mean either of those two things or some combination. Right. Three things happen. First, the price goes up and that signals consumers to act morally. You should leave some for someone else because they need it more than you do. Second, it makes producers, it gives producers a signal that we need more of this stuff. You should make more of this stuff if you can. Third, it tells entrepreneurs, see if you can think of a way to make a substitute or to find a way to shortcut whatever the bottleneck is in the production process. And no government order is given out. And in fact, no one actually knows that any of those signals have happened. All that happened was the price went up. So for many complicated reasons, fully understood by no one, there is no one in the government or in the market that fully understands the reasons why the price went up. But the price went up. All three of these things happen automatically and in a really decentralized, distributed way. All over the world, people take advantage of this price signal and they start doing the right thing. What's interesting, Alex, is if you had an omniscient, benevolent social planner who could whisper in the ears of consumers, that person would say, buy less. Right. But I do that just because of prices. If you had an omniscient, benevolent social planner to tell producers, we need more of this. You need to make more. Prices have already told them that. Or you could, you could tell entrepreneurs, stop what you're doing and work on this. Find a substitute for this. So the price mechanism accomplishes the three things that an omniscient, benevolent social planner couldn't hope to because they don't have enough information. Right. And understanding prices as signals and as a coordination mechanism, that's one thing. And then on the other hand, I, I find that there's a lot of people when it comes to any sort of price shock, if you will, a radical price shift. You know, people are throwing around the words like demand shock, supply shock. Maybe you can give a quick explanation of that with, with an example. Like, I, I suppose a demand shock would be something like, for again, for as you said, for reasons we don't know, a bunch of people want something all at once. That would be a demand shock. Right. And so the, the toilet paper example is really interesting. I'm sorry to keep coming to back, back to that one, but that's, that's okay. really an interesting one. There's, there's Because I have thought about this recently, and I'm actually trying to write a short article about it. There's, there's an interesting supply shock and demand shock. Hmm. So what has happened is that people go to the store and they're not sure that they're going to be able to obtain toilet paper a week from now because everyone else is buying it. So in, in effect, they're worried that on the supply side, there's going to be lack of availability. And so they buy up a whole bunch. Now, we usually call that hoarding and we think it's a bad idea. Suppose that the price mechanism were allowed to respond to that. Well, the reason that I'm hoarding is either I want to have it for myself or I want to be able to resell it because I can buy it at a low price. But if the price had gone up, I wouldn't be buying up all the toilet paper on the shelf. So the reason we have hoarding is that we have laws against price gouging. The only reason we have hoarding 
is that we have laws against price gouging. Increased price would have solved the hoarding problem. But okay, that's a kind of supply shock because we think on the supply side, we're not going to be able to get enough response fast enough. Although actually, even now, the increased the ability of the second and third, although I don't know what a substitute for, actually I do, the demand <laughs> for bidets, the demand for bidets has just gone through the roof. Right. So there's been a three or 400% increase in the number of bidets that people are installing. So there are substitutes for toilet paper. But the main one is the, the supply response of producers. So they're, they're, the factories that, that take pulp and make it into toilet paper are running 24 hours a day. And we're, we're, the, the capitalist system is very close to solving the shortage of toilet paper. But here's the thing. There was a demand shock, and I did not understand why. The demand shock is that, and I don't want to get too personal to you guys, but you're probably at home. Uh, the the other staff, are, are, they're all at home. Right. The, all the workers are at home. It used to be we would go to work and we do those things that involve the use of toilet paper. So <laughs> right. quite a bit of the toilet paper I used to use was at Duke. Or if I'm, you know, I'm, I'm traveling at a hotel. None of those things now are sources of toilet paper for me. I need enough to supply my toilet paper needs, not just when I'm at home, not at work, but when I'm at home at work. So there's a 30 or 40% increase in the amount of toilet paper in a secular way across the economy. So there's actually a reason for the shortage because hotels, restaurants, workplaces, they have big stocks of toilet paper. Those things are all locked up. Now I need to be able to supply all my toilet paper needs at home. So the result is, again, there should have been, there should have been, I'm making a moral argument, mm -hmm. there should have been an increase in price to reflect the fact that we don't have enough of it. And here's a point that we haven't made yet. Price is a consequence of scarcity. Regulating price makes scarcity worse, not better. So People tend to want to say, oh, I don't like high prices. Well, maybe you don't like sirens on fire trucks. Does that mean we should outlaw sirens on fire trucks? No, sirens on fire trucks are a sign of fires. We want to get rid of the fires. If you get rid of the fires, that'll solve the problem of the loud sirens. Right. But saying no loud sirens makes the problem of fires worse because then you don't know where they are. So having high prices is a consequence, a useful, con I don't like them. I don't like high prices, but in an emergency, it may be the best response that we can have. And so this is something that I, I have said a couple of times. People ask me, do you favor price gouging? Absolutely not. I also don't think that we should cut open someone's abdomen with a razor blade. <laughs> right. However, if they have appendicitis and it's a surgeon cutting open your abdomen with a razor blade, that may be the best thing we can do. Even though I don't favor it, it may be the best. So in an emergency, price gouging may be the best that we can do. And it's frustrating. I understand that. I myself, I go into the store and I see prices high. I think, why are they trying to take advantage of me? It's just a human response. Right. Friedrich Hayek called it an atavism. So it's a result of our lizard brains that for a long time we expected people to share. But in a worldwide economy, 
increased prices give signals to people far away who otherwise would not care about my welfare. And it gives them a reason to care about my welfare. What a great system that is. Right. And, and it's also just what you're used to on an ongoing basis, right? Like people do things every day that they don't really think of every day, you know, like going to get toilet paper, going to get a bottle of water, whatever it is. And then when something disturbs that pattern, people go, hold on, someone must be taking advantage of me in the process yeah. rather than thinking of the mechanism. But the, and that's the thing that I always ask. People say, well, I'm worried about the poor people. Yes, you're talking about prices, but what about the poor people? All right. I have a question. Which is worse, high prices or empty shelves? Right. Empty shelves are much worse. I can't buy it at all. And it's even worse for poor people. Empty shelves are worse than high prices because at least high prices mean that those shelves will soon be refilled and at a lower price. Empty shelves with price gouging laws means nobody can buy any. So unless your moral philosophy is motivated entirely by envy, that is, if poor people can't have it, nobody can then you should favor the price system. I guess if, if we do want to get into the discussion of if the government has a role during such a, a disaster and what they should be doing, uh, perhaps and I'm just throwing things out there. I'm not saying they should do this, but it's obviously not to prevent prices from doing their things. If, if people are saying, well, what about the poor people? Perhaps the government could be doing something else to give relief to people in lower income situations. The coronavirus is actually an instance where I, even I, would not say the only thing that we should be doing is allowing prices to rise. So the examples that I always give are like after a hurricane. So it's a fairly local area, and it means that if prices there go up, it's a signal to everybody else to send more. But right now, because of coronavirus, medical supplies are needed all over the world. In, and everybody knows that. We already know that. So increased prices of medical supplies are not going to solve this problem. So economists have a concept they call elasticity. So elasticity is a measure of responsiveness. So one of the keys to my argument is that the supply elasticity, the responsiveness of supply to changes in price is actually high. If I'm working in a hospital in New York, I don't think that the answer is what we need is higher prices for gloves. I think we need higher price. We need more gloves. The, the state might say we are going to take these and we're going to reallocate it to medical professionals instead of having them hoarded in the houses of wealthy people. I, I can totally understand that. The price mechanism is not going to solve the problem fast enough. Medical units that are being overwhelmed we might use another mechanism for allocation. However, just when I had sort of, I was ready to concede that, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York actually tweeted, this is so fantastic, a tweet from the governor of New York said, please send us your medical supplies, we will pay a premium. The governor of New York recognized that the price mechanism was working on his side in an emergency. Right. So, even there, it's true that there is a supply elasticity that we can take advantage of. But I, since the worldwide elasticity of medical supplies for price is probably not very high, the, we're, trying, we're doing our best to produce all we can already. An increased price is not going to solve that problem. Now, the, one more example of the state, though, and I actually tweeted about this morning, and I've been getting a lot of hate tweets in response, Donald Trump and the U.S. federal government is confiscating medical supplies that are bound for a lot of hospitals. Nobody knows what they're doing with them. They're, they're seizing it. Well, that's what you people on the left say you want. You want the state to take over the allocation of medical supplies. But the hospitals, and a lot of them are nonprofits. These are private hospitals. 
surely private experts, private doctors know more about where medical supplies should go than Donald Trump and the elected officials of the Republican administration. So the problem with saying the state should do this, there's no such thing as the state, Alex. There's just elected officials. Exactly. And under many circumstances, we're probably better off using some private mechanism. So actually, in this case, it, I think it's pretty clear the state is going to botch this. What Donald Trump and the Republican administration in the U.S. are doing is they're taking all of these supplies and they're putting them in warehouses instead of them being used by the, by the hospitals on the front line that desperately need them. So why do you think the state is going to be better able to do this than all of the decentralized, nonprofit, voluntary people that are doing their best to solve the crisis? So if you're talking to someone that, that regardless of, of what they believe, they still think there's a role for the state to play. Ultimately, what you're saying is it's not to go countercurrent to what the market mechanisms are doing and what the prices are doing and, and what current allocative, it seems, patterns are doing. It's rather to see what the government can do to maybe uh, step in and actually work with what's going on. For example, as you said, it seems that the United States found $2 trillion worth of stimulus for other things. I'm assuming they could find some budget to purchase, at, as you were saying before, uh, whatever equipment is necessary at the prices uh, that are on the market. Yep, that's true. It's hard to get the money to the people that need it, as we've already found. So this was announced two weeks ago, and nothing has happened yet. And it'll probably be another two weeks before it starts to happen. One possibility is that the state could deliver the needed supplies just like out of trucks. So after a, after a hurricane or after some natural disaster, we often say that the state comes in and supplies these things. And in fact, when I talk about price gouging, people will often say, well, I wish that you say there's only two alternatives. Um, so I, I give an example. So we have someone who's watching TV and says, I feel really terrible about this. I wonder what is on the sports channel. And of course, what's on the sports channel is two guys playing Madden because it's coronavirus. But still, I can watch two guys playing Madden football. Or person B, person B says, I have a bunch of this stuff. I'm going to sell it at a really high price in order to increase the supply. Who should be in jail? Person A, who does nothing but feels bad, or person B, who says, I can sell some of this? And the answer is, with price gouging laws, person B. We put person B in jail, even though they're increasing the supply of the stuff. And so the response I get is, I want person C. Person C is the state, and they come in and they give away the needed supplies. Okay, let's suppose that's true. That means that price gouging laws are moot. Because right. it's impossible to price gouge if there's sufficient supply. So prices, again, are the canary in the coal mine. They're a signal. They're a siren. If the state is doing the job you think it should do, which is to increase the supply, price gouging is impossible. If the state is not doing the job that you think it should do, then price gouging is possible, but it's necessary. Either way, we shouldn't have price gouging laws. So let's suppose that everything, every optimistic view people have about the state is correct. Let's go nuts. The state is going to supply this. That's great. In that case, we still don't need price gouging laws because it's impossible. So in a way, like you said, if people do think that there is a strong role for the state, as you said, let's even run with the go assumption run with the assumption that the state's perfect. The, the rising price or, or a situation people think to themselves is out of control is, is, a, is a signal not only of, of supply and demand, but is also a signal that whatever role the state has to play, it's not doing correctly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with saying let's have the state suck less. 
If you can find a way for the state to suck less, I am good with that. But I live in the United States and my president is Donald Trump. So I don't think there's much hope in that direction in the immediate future. Fair enough. Uh, as far as government policy is concerned, one alternative that's been suggested by, by many in lieu of banning price increases is is limiting the amount of stock people can buy at a given time and things like that. Well, what's your take on this first and, and second? Maybe we can get into some of the effects of that if that were to happen. Well, I think I think that's absolutely going to happen. And in fact, I think we're going to see co- near total rationing of emergency supplies in large cities within the next two or three weeks. Mm. So food, food supplies are going to be given out to long lines of people from a truck that is protected with a tank with machine guns. So we're going to go full Soviet-style rationing because there, there are a lot of poor people in cities who, through no fault of their own, right. they have no resources to deal with this. They have no income. The government is not going to act quickly enough to be able to get money into their pockets. The only way to keep our cities from being on fire and the weather's going to start getting warmer, particularly in cities like Los Angeles. So you're trapped inside. You have no money. You have no hope. Your children are crying for food. We have to have some way of allocating this. So I think that the U.S. is in some cities is going to go to a full scale rationing system and anticipating that is probably not a bad idea. There's, there are nationwide shortages of some of those things. So a voluntary program of restriction saying you can't buy more than two. So the, the, I was at Whole Foods and they would not let us buy more than two jars of peanut butter. Right. And that was a private decision by them. Yes. Yes, it was. And it probably was accepted by most of Whole Foods uh, crunchy customers because we're, we're all, we're all quite crunchy. And if, if otherwise, what would happen is the shelves would be empty. I think that is an alternative. Now, Whole Foods is not a place that poor people go to shop, I understand. But still, we might work to solve that problem by making the suggestion. I mean, saying, please don't hoard, that's not enough. We either need high prices or some sort of shame policed restriction of don't buy more than two units. Right. Now, the the store can just say, but I've, I've actually seen twice somebody get so angry about being told they could only buy two. There, there was almost a fight. Somebody was so upset. I need this stuff. And so when the, the person at the checkout counter said you can only have two of those, they went nuts. So th- that's the re- I think we're going to have to move to state enforced rationing. I find that like I, and I think I'm not sure um, if you saw this in the news or, or whatnot, but I, I- I guess one of the things that is also at play right now, it seems I've been reading some articles just about it in the past few days is that there's there's quite frankly, huge supply cartels like, the you know, the for instance, the dairy farmers of Canada, that people are so worried about where the prices would go and, for you know, whether they they would even drop off because of demand that that now that there's people seeming like like dumping supplies and like, you know, millions of liters of milk are supposedly going to be dumped by many dairy farmers so that, in fact, there isn't now people are worried about an oversupply. So they don't want prices to go too low. Like like I'm not saying, you know, there ought to be a law. But again, what's your take on that? And, and how do we reconcile these kinds of things? from this rationing situation we may be in in a few weeks. So the response I often get from people when I talk about prices is to say, well, wait, prices aren't perfect. And the example that you give is a, is a very interesting one. So when the coronavirus starts, first started to move into Canadian cities, the Canadian government actually suggested, oh, there's a shortage of milk. Now, you can't raise price, but the Canadian government said, we need more milk. And so producers ramped up as much as they could. 
So an alternative to the price increase was my type two response, producers produce more. Well, the Canadian government was wrong. What happened was people bought two or three gallons of milk and they put it in the refrigerator. And it turns out that milk is not like toilet paper. You, you, can, you can freeze a little bit of it. Toilet paper can be in big stacks in your right. garage. You can't have big stacks of milk, although in France you can because they don't refrigerate it. We, we need to have non-refrigerated milk. But if, if, if you have refrigerated milk, as in most of North America, you can't really stockpile it. So the result was people had frozen milk and the demand, which the state had panicked and said, Canada had panicked and said, you guys have to produce more milk. Well, the farmers, being Canadian, did what they were told. It's what Canadians do. <laughs> and so the, the amount of milk skyrocketed, the price plummeted, and now all the dairy farmers are in trouble. So I don't think there's an alternative to disposing of milk because you're going to be down close to the point where it's not – milk is expensive to ship. You have to refrigerate it. It's almost not worth it. So the, the, it, in a period of price disruption – and that's what we're in, attempts to use something other than the price, which was the Canadian government panicking and saying, we need more milk, we need more milk. Right, right. No, no, it turns out we didn't. So th this was a crisis that was caused by the panicking of state officials who didn't have the information that they needed. And so the price is information that comes from everywhere. I don't know its source and I don't know all of the things it contains. A Canadian government official just read of something in the paper and said, oh, no, we need more milk. That wasn't true. We say we joke, but that's unfortunately potentially the way that actually happened. The reason it's funny is that it is almost certainly true. And I'm not saying I could do better. Notice that this doesn't mean that the government official had anything but the best intentions mm -hmm. and used all of the best available information. The thing about the price mechanism is it uses information that is available in total to no individual. No one is smart enough. No one is well-informed enough to make these decisions. Unsurprisingly, someone made a mistake. So now what's going to happen is I think there's no alternative but to throw the milk away. It can't be stored. It can't be transported. That's really a terrible waste. And probably what's going to happen is the dairy farmers of Canada are going to blame the market. Right. Well, the price went down. We're getting ripped off. The price went down. We have to. This is a market failure. We have to solve this market failure. So the, the lack of understanding of how the price mechanism works is a problem. I do also think that in this case, bad things would have happened no matter what. When you have price disruptions and variability that, that's that big, it's true that you, you look at the, the gyrations of stock markets recently, uncertainty is a real enemy to price. And you already said it. I go to the store and I know how much toilet paper costs. I know how much milk costs. Mm -hmm. Big disruptions in price, not just for consumers, but for producers. I mean, I don't know what to do because it may change again tomorrow. And, and again, here's a situation, with, especially with that dairy farmers thing. Like, I, I don't like all waste is bad, of course, and, and nobody wants to see milk being poured down a drain. That is very sad. But at the same time, relatively speaking, if you compare that to other perishable items, I, I don't think most people need milk if we really get down to it. So that, that's a dangerous case, case study. We have we have enough. And it would be sometimes it's even more people that write about food waste ignore the fact that it's wasteful to prevent waste. Right. It's really expensive to prevent waste because you have to store it somehow, which requires freezing. Now, it, there's some places in Canada that are still cold enough that you can freeze milk, but it, it's getting to the point where it's going to take electricity. So preventing waste 
is very expensive. And, and and as I was saying, like this is a case study where if the government steps into another industry or another set of supplies is needed, and, they, and as you said, some politician wakes up, probably with the best intentions in heart, reads a newspaper and says, oh, well, we got to get involved here. Or we got to tell this group of producers to produce this. Again, the milk thing is a case study for how this could basically spread across an economy or multiple sectors. And that would be a bad situation to be in where people are dumping things or not able to ship them because there's not enough like in container shipping. Many things could happen. Who knows? Like it's so many variables. Well, we, we we have we have seen exactly that in the United States between 1934 and 1936. The Roosevelt administration's attempt to raise prices in some of these poor industries mm. over and over again resulted in exactly that kind of disruption. And because we have learned nothing from history, I'm sure it will happen again. You're right. It's a case study. I think you are prescient, Alex. <laughs> well, thank you, Mike. Um, before we, we before we take a break, which we'll do in just a minute here, I, I just wanted to get one more sort of smaller point in and a comment. I, I find that one thing that's very interesting is that people often, uh, when they're talking about price gouging and the way prices are working, they're, they're very often focused on the frontline merchant making massive profits. In some cases, this might be true, of course, but I don't think that's completely right, right? Like some of the supply behind multiple steps if we follow iPencil, of course, as an example in our head, thousands of people involved here. It's sort of an elevation potentially of prices either at one major spot or at multiple spots across a supply chain. I don't think people are right in always thinking that it's simply always a frontline problem. Well, it, it almost never is a frontline problem. So uh, the, the, your, your question is complicated. It has two parts. One is if I see the price goes go up, who's making money? And whoever is making money, they must be bad. Well, that's not true. The, the price going up is actually what we're depending on. The, the, if I buy milk and I'm a, a retailer, then the only money I make is on the milk I happen to have on hand when the price first goes up. That's not that much. That's not a big change in my revenues. After that, I have to pay more to the upstream supplier. But the upstream suppliers, they're all increasing their costs too because they're trying to ramp up production very quickly. So one thing is the money that's being made is is pretty small. The second thing is that even if people are making money, it's still worth it because high prices are better than empty shelves. No matter what you think about the fact, you've really raised an important point. I think many people on the left, if they actually were reflective and they think about what is it that really upsets me, the main thing they want to avoid is any unearned benefit for someone else. They're obsessed with eliminating unearned benefits for someone else. So if somebody gets something they don't deserve, that's terrible. And they're willing to punish poor people to achieve that. So in, in the example of that, um, let, let's say sweatshops. So there, there was a bunch of poor people. They're working hard in a sweatshop. And I think that's unjust because they're not paid enough. I'm willing to go in and announce to those people, I am the great white man. I'm here to save you. You're all fired. Because it makes me feel bad that there are sweatshops in the world. So I am willing to buy at the price of your material harm. You're going to be fired from the only job and the highest paying job you can get. That's still better than me feeling bad about the fact that there are sweatshops in the world. No poor people are glad when someone closes the factory that they work in. And in fact, we know that sweatshops actually lead in the long run to prosperity by creating a system of wages and a distribution system. So South Korea, 
Taiwan, a number of those countries right after World War II, they had sweatshops and now they're wealthy. Now they've moved to being first world countries. So I worry that the main concern that many people actually have is I don't want anyone else to get unearned benefits because it's not fair. I should be getting them. Well, that's a terrible reason to hate on poor people. I would because so. they're the in, they're the innocent bystanders, but always we dress this up as if it's concern for the poor. It can't possibly be concern for the poor. Firing people from sweatshops doesn't help those people. Preventing poor people from buying stuff they need with price gouging laws that doesn't help poor people. All it does is ensure that no one got an unearned benefit. It seems like they're uh, when, when the, uh, the 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 middle class and, uh, as you said, the white middle class folk and the state get together and moralize. There seems to be some sort of externality, I would say. And it hurts the poor people. I mean, the, I'm not saying they're trying to. No, of course. Yeah. Be careful. I'm not saying they're trying. They actually honestly believe this helps the poor. There's no mechanism that it, someone who understands markets, there's no mechanism by which that can be true. You're harming the poor. Right. Maybe we flip the Adam Smith quote, right? It's not for the malevolence of the the busybody or the concerned person that they then harm the poor. Yeah, that that I that's great. Not only are you prescient, you're a scholar. <laughs> anyway, I think with that we'll take our break, Mike. So everyone, you're you're listening to the Curious Task, and I'm on with Mike Munger. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Janet Bufton, Joe Aragona, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Mike Munger today. Uh, Mike, over the break, I thought of something. Well, two things. First, I find that gouging is quite an arbitrary term, isn't it? It basically means that prices are, are higher than people are used to and, and all the great things we discussed in our first half of the conversation today. But but again, and we sort of touched on this be- before the break, that it isn't always fair to assume the connotation of that word, which is basically that there's someone in the back, like, you know, rubbing their hands together. I'm going to gouge today. That could be true in some cases, but 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 not always for sure. It's, I think it's a very politically charged term. It's, it's not helpful for us to really see what's going on, I find. Well, it- the reason it's understandable is that it is rhetorically effective for people who are advocates. Right. But there's also the point, and I've, I've actually written about this some, we're evolved to be in groups of about 150, and you can't get stuff from outside of the group. And so we're evolved to have a, a social conscience where we think in terms of insurance. That is, if I am hungry and you have food, more than you can eat, the food's just going to go bad, you should give me some. You're a really bad person if you charge me money. So it's as if our minds are evolved to live in a lifeboat. And lifeboat is the artificial setting that philosophers use to describe a place where the supply elasticity is zero. So we're we're in the middle of the ocean. I have a lot of water. You're really thirsty. You say, I need some water. Will you give me some? And I say, yes. However, I'm going to charge you what it's worth. And since your life is worth a million dollars and your offspring are probably, your your as yet unborn offspring are worth at least $200,000 each to you and you're going to have three, I want $1.6 million. And I'll take an IOU. Right. Well, if, if we survive and we get back to shore, that would be an unconscionable contract. The courts would not enforce that. 
and understandably, because in that case, there's nobody else that's going to have it. There's two of us in a lifeboat. So there's, there, there's no allocation problem, and the supply elasticity is zero. So none of the things that I've said, so our minds work like that. Mm. So we have lifeboat minds, but we live in a Walmart world. And I use the word Walmart precisely because it makes people on the left mad. Walmart has a really excellent supply chain. So if a price goes up somewhere, they'll have more stuff two days later. So we, we live in a Walmart world, but we have lifeboat minds. So that's the reason why we tend to see price increases. Our lizard brains just think of that as being a bad thing. And we're clever. We can come up with some justification for it. Oh, it's bad for the poor. They don't deserve this. But in fact, it's a deeply ingrained, what, what Friedrich Hayek called atavism. So it's something that once was evolutionarily adaptive, but it no longer is, except if you're actually in a lifeboat situation. So the reason I want to be a little bit careful is I think we're in a lifeboat situation in some large cities. Hmm. Okay. So having, having state action and rationing is justified because it's closer to being a lifeboat. There's not enough. The price mechanism is not going to allocate effectively. And some people are going to die if they don't get this. We have to have some mechanism of making sure that they get some. And the state, for all of its flaws, has guns. It, it does. Well, and attack helicopters and tanks. In a situation where you're on the verge of chaos, social disorder, where the, the normal systems like Walmart are breaking down, you're in a lifeboat. So I, I honestly believe and I, I fully accept. I would, I'm going to go so far as to say endorse state-run rationing of emergency supplies in cities because the markets are not going to be able to handle it. So it, it, we're sort of thinking of this if if markets are obviously preferable to state rationing, but we're in a case where markets doing what they should do, as, as we've been in our discussion, might not actually cut it in this time. Perhaps it, you're, what you're saying is that in this case, the state rationing is preferable to total chaos and nobody getting anything. The reason is I'm not really a natural rights theorist. Many of my libertarian brethren and sisterin are natural rights theorists, and for them, it's markets because this is mine, I can charge whatever price I want. I'm more of a consequentialist. I want to choose the system that does the best that we can, particularly for those who are least able to care for themselves. So if there's a system, and in this case, it is state-run rationing in the large cities that will keep the cities from being war zones and will provide the children of poor people with supplies they otherwise wouldn't get, I would be willing to countenance rationing. And in your book, Is Capitalism Sustainable? You talk about sort of the different kinds of people being either a directionalist or destinationalist. Yeah. Perhaps even if you are still a natural rights libertarian, it would be important to consider that now is probably a time more than any other to consider a little more directionalism rather than destinationalism. Yeah. I don't think in the middle of COVID-19, we can really build our, our anarcho-capitalist utopia or whatever people I, want, right? I, I, Alex, I have friends that see this as their chance. That, well, I guess that's a flip side, right? Uh, maybe I'm not entrepreneurial it's, enough it's, in that way. It's only way. a crisis. It's only a crisis. This is standard radical theory. Right. Whether you're a Marxist or an anarchist, this is our chance. I think that's a terrible idea. And I guess then this is where we get, and, and it'd be great for a whole other episode where we get into the inside baseball, the different kinds of anarchists and how they're going to argue about this. So we're not going to go yeah. down that line. No, you're, you, I, I, just saying that I probably already got you 100 emails. Uh, probably. That's okay. We'll take them. No worries, Mike. <laughs> and, you know, as a flip side to sort of price gouging, I was thinking the other day, it's interesting to me that, um, and we're talking about earlier again, tying it back to that, where people, you know, they go to a store every day, they're used to certain things. If a price shoots up, they're very unhappy. As you 
said, people are getting very mad at Whole Foods managers, whatever the case may be. Um, I find that people uh, and it's funny to me that people aren't as upset. As a matter of fact, they're happy when they see what, what I can just term real quickly as price plunging. Everyone likes going by the gas station and seeing, uh, you know, the price drop by 40 cents. I find in that case, uh, you know, a lot of people aren't saying, well, hold on a minute. Is this gas station in this sort of shock situation able to still employ as many people for as many hours yeah. in a little convenience bar? I find that... It, I guess what I'm trying to say, and, and maybe I'm more wondering out loud than asking a pointed question, and you can wonder aloud with me, is is it seems that people are um, not really talking about um, radical changes in prices being a problem for X, Y, and Z reason. They moralize about that. It's always the upwards motion, but the downwards motion can have lots of side effects as well. Well, the, the downward motion, some people might agree, and we've already talked about an example, the dairy farmers in Canada. So some people would say the downward, the downward motion of price means that we should do something. In this case, the cartel said you should dump milk. But it's possible to imagine subsidizing dairy farms uh, so they don't go out of business. You raised an interesting point about labor in effect. So there's a there's a price of labor that we think will fluctuate, and it's called wages. Wages don't fluctuate all that quickly because we usually have some kind of contract. So it's not like wheat where you look in the morning about what the commodities prices are. Um, we have a system that make it very difficult for wages to go down. In the United States, we have a federal minimum wage and we have state minimum wages. And in fact, the, the state of California, and I, I have a, uh, a letter that's signed by more than 100 economists to the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, where I call on the state of California to get rid of a piece of legislation with AB5, Assembly Bill 5. Assembly Bill 5 said that anyone who works for Uber is an employee, not a contractor. Well, what that means is that Uber is unable to hire people part-time. Well, that sounds like a good idea if you think everyone who works for Uber, Uber will now be a full-time employee and have benefits. That's not true. What's happened already in California is that many freelance writers, you can't write more than 30 things each year for a magazine now. You have to get benefits. So the result was not they were hired with benefits. The result was they were fired. So we have minimum wage laws, we have contractor employee laws, we have all sorts of things that make it much more difficult for wages to fall. Now, if you're a worker in the COVID-19 crisis, you would prefer to have a part-time job to no job. But we have a bunch of rules that say no part-time jobs and no low-wage jobs, which means that the system itself is preventing wages from adjusting. So we don't get these declines in price. We'd be better off allowing the declines in wages and then trying to make up the difference. Because people individually, they're trying to think of some way, how can I make a little bit of money? So if you're a part-time writer, you can write a few things, you're still at home, you could, you could accomplish this, but there's laws that prevent you from being able to make a living. So we need to do – the, the call about AB5 is for an emergency. I think the law should be eliminated. But it, at least it should be suspended in the short term because it makes it much more difficult for prices to adjust. So the wages falling, I think, are really important. One of the things that was interesting was I was having a conversation on Twitter, as I do the other day, and a friend of mine on the left said, well, she was really glad at least a lot of hospital workers were doubling their wages. And I said, oh, so you favor price gouging. 
<laughs> there, there you go. It's, a, it's still there, a price. There's a shortage. There's a shortage of hospital workers. We should pay them more. I'm on board with that. I'm just surprised that she thinks that's true because she's against price gouging. Right. And, and no, nobody, as you said, you said something about uh, rhetorical effectiveness earlier and what works for politicians and, and public policy and, th- and things that don't. I guess nobody really wants to think of, of, of nurses as, as a group going to gouge people. But but from an economic perspective, that, that if the prices are shooting up and they're able to charge those, it can be looked at that it for sure there's not enough labor and the price is doubled right either that's price gouging or nothing is (laughs) there you go and and actually on that note it's pretty interesting i guess that we have some uh real life examples right now just in the past couple of weeks of uh you know, some of these labor control laws, I guess I'll term them, uh, the state's now realizing, oh, God, they're not helping, especially not in this type of situation, for instance, yeah. uh, whether or not nurses can practice a- across state lines yeah. and uh, different types yeah. of um, occupational licensing is being called into question now. I mean, my hope is that we can continue that conversation after crisis. But but either way, again, the, the discussion about limitations of labor and letting markets allocate and do their thing like that's being called into question right now in a variety of areas beyond just milk on a shelf. A month ago, a bunch of my friends were telling me no libertarian can possibly take anything but great sorrow from this because it's a failure of markets. And what has happened is the revealing of the catastrophic mistakes of the state mean that rhetorically we're in a position to say, you know, we've been saying this all along. It's just that you agree now because there's a crisis. Get rid of these restrictions. Right. Yeah. It's amazing how many people that otherwise wouldn't have said something along the lines of what I'm about to say are now saying it, which is there's too many restrictions. We need people to be able to A, move around the way they want, B, uh, allocate their time and labor the way they want, and C, be paid what they need to be or practice nursing or wherever where they need to so we can get things to the right area areas and the right numbers. Well, that's an interesting argument, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and an original. No one's ever said that. No, oh, wait. exactly. Yeah. Um, I want to I, I had a note here. I think we actually kind of already covered it, but I just want to put a finer point on it, which is um, in, in an article you wrote uh, this for uh, the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, you, it's called uh, Three Undeniable Problems with Anti-Gouging Laws. Um, you actually made a distinction right up front before you dove into the meat of the article about um how first and foremost it's important to distinguish price gouging and price fluctuation from monopoly pricing. I think in the lifeboat analogy, we already kind of got into that, but I'm not sure if you'd like to wrap that into a finer point because I think that's really key to understand. Right. And that's the, the, to be fair, there's three things that people refer to as price gouging and two of them are actually bad. So I do have to be careful when I say we shouldn't have price gouging laws. One is after hurricane or natural disaster, somebody will come in. Like here in North Carolina, um, after a hurricane, there's a bunch of trees down. So a, a crew will come to your door and say, we'll get rid of those trees for $500. They get rid of the trees. They come and they give you a bill for 3000 And it's an old person. The old person feels threatened. They end up paying the $3,000. And then they say, well, wait, that wasn't right. That was fraud. So fraud is price gouging. That's true. Second, the um, what was his first name? The the guy in the United States that Martin 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 Shkreli, um, found a way to be able to charge really high prices for a couple of drugs. The first time he did it, it was a generic drug. But the Obama so generic drugs are not under patent. Anybody should be able to produce them. But the the Obama administration had said, you know, there's not enough control of generic drugs. We should license them. And they set up a system that said only the current producer of generic drugs can produce unless somebody else gets a license. And if someone else applies for the license, the current producer can object. Well, guess what? 
they're going to do that. Mm-hmm. That's price gouging. What Martin Shkreli did was figure out a way to get the the right, the illegitimate right, to be the sole producer of a drug and prevent any other companies from producing it. And then he jacked the price from $1 to $800 per pill. That's price gouging. It is. But it's enabled enabled by restrictions by the state. So fraud and illegitimate restrictions on competition by the state that confer monopoly power. Those are price gouging. They're wrong. I am with you. I will take to the streets and we'll hold signs. No price gouging. Right. But we have to take those two off the table. What's left is the response of price to shortages that give the signals for the three things that I'm talked about. Those are okay. Those we need. And I, I think it's it's important at, at this point, this kind of conversation, when this kind of thing comes up to to make the distinction that y- you and I would be people that are proponents of the market doing its thing. We're yeah. not like, for instance, uh, if, if you were to do this dichotomy, we're not pro-business, we're pro-market. So we're not happy, as you said, that three businesses can go to the, uh, have a nice lunch at the White House and say, hey, uh, Mr. President, we're going to solve your problem. All you have to do is give these three corporations the rights to sell this product and make sure other people don't get in the way. That's not the kind of thing yeah. we're saying. We're talking about pro-market. That, that's cronyism, and certainly cronyism is an important aspect. I don't believe that's what happened in the case of the Obama administration and the Food and Drug Administration restrictions on generic drugs. I think they honestly thought that they would make the system more rational by making it harder to enter. It's just that that conferred a monopoly power on someone who was clever enough. They, the, the FDA said, well, we never thought anybody would do that. <laughs> well, for heaven's sake. I mean, we never thought so the, the entrepreneurs and the businesses would take advantage of a framework we set up. Well, a, a framework to to dramatically increase their their profits in a way that's legal. Right. Why would they not do that? You you are the ones who created the legal framework. Exactly. So the now but cronyism is often where these things come from. I agree. So cronyism, well, let's make it four. Cronyism's a problem, artificial restrictions are a problem, and fraud is a problem. All those three forms of price gouging are bad. And and, and Mike, I'm just looking at the clock here. This was a great discussion. Our time is winding down. It's not completely up yet. I actually wanted to end... Um, with you kind of giving a, a summary of, of of your personal story of, of, a, of a hurricane in North Carolina, it involves yahoos transporting ice, as you called them in the uh, in the article. So why don't you just take a few minutes and, and talk about you've had personal experience with this in your own kind of case study. And, and, and you were you were quite angry at the way that the whole situation went with with public opinion and government response to it. So, so let's just let's end with that. Well, I, I'll try to tell it relatively briefly. Let me ask first. What is the Canadian, and this is probably regional differences, but what's the Canadian equivalent of redneck? I actually, I think we actually, people use that term here, I would say. So, so it's, it's relatable. The, I, I actually have a collection. I have 20 different words from around the world. In Chile, it would be huaso. A huaso is sort of a not very bright cowboy uh, that you can't rely on to know anything. So the, I called them yahoos, rednecks, or any of the other 20 names for, so, so that you know uh, the, the sort of person that we're talking about. And th- th- these are my people. Most of my kin are redneck. So I'm not in any way trying to make a class distinction here. 1996, Hurricane Fran hit Raleigh. It was supposed to go east and hit Goldsboro, North Carolina. It hit Raleigh, the state capital where I live. Many, many trees were down all over the city. Power was down for two weeks. The result was that many people needed ice. Because pretty quickly after the power goes down, you hear things starting to move in your freezer. Because first, they're thawing, and then pretty soon because they're alive. Because it's 37, 38 degrees, it's pretty uncomfortably hot. And so 
the very quickly people around the area of Raleigh who had plenty of ice saw that it was possible to take ice to Raleigh and sell it for a high price. So I imagine that three yahoos, rednecks, huasos in Goldsboro, North Carolina, where a lot of ice had been prepositioned, said, we have the technology and tools to solve this problem. We will rent refrigerator trucks, we'll buy up ice at $1.50 a bag, and we will go sell it in Raleigh, but not for $1.50 a bag. We're going to sell it for $11 a bag. They set up business and pretty quickly a line formed. So enough people were willing to buy ice at $11 a bag that there was still non-price rationing. There were six or eight people in line to buy the ice. The police come up and North Carolina has a, an anti-price gouging law. And the anti-price gouging law in North Carolina has a... Uh, trigger, which means the governor has to declare a state of emergency, check that it happened. Second is the domain. It's the set of things you need in an emergency. Well, ICE is one of those, check. And then the third thing is the limit, the amount that the price can go up under the trigger in the domain. And the answer is 5%. The law actually says unreasonably excessive under the circumstances. No one knew what that meant, so they clarified it. It means 5%. So I don't think, I, I don't mean to criticize Raleigh's police, but I think that Raleigh's police did not need a calculator to know that $11 was more than 5% more than $1.50. Hey, <laughs> you're breaking the law. So they arrested the rednecks and they handcuffed them and they took them off and they impounded the trucks, took them to the police impound lot, turned off the trucks and all the ice melted. And to be fair to the police, that's what the law said they had to do. They were breaking the law. It's true. What I think is interesting is that the question, the people standing in line, what did they do? And so let me ask the listeners to think for a second. The people standing in line, what did they do? And the answer is they clapped. They were happy. And I have thought about this for a long time. And you're right. For a while, I was mad about it. But I have come in my old age to understand that people just don't think the way economists do. We have these lizard brains and we think we live in a lifeboat. And so they were making a trade-off. There's two considerations. One is the material gain I expect to realize as a result of buying the ice for $11. Probably that's not much. I might have only paid 12 or 13 so most of the consumer surplus here is being taken because that's the reason they charge the price. They thought, what is the most people will pay for ice? Right. The other is my sense of moral outrage at being taken advantage of. You should not be charging me this much for ice because I need it. Now, we don't think, you know, the ice was not here. The ice was in Goldsboro. The only reason it's here is they drove here to be able to sell it. We don't think that way. We think this is ice. I need it. You have it. You're being a bastard by charging me a high price. And so the people in line were more outraged than they were expecting any kind of benefit. Now, I can say they're wrong to be outraged and that the price mechanism was helping them. But in fact, economics is about trade-off. They have those two preferences. Th those people really upset. And you can ask, okay, but then why were they in line? Remember, they were not able to act on the other preference. So they would have preferred, and this is what's interesting, they would have, if, if I'm right, they would have preferred that the ice not be available. Since it was, they were willing to pay $11 for it. But they preferred the setting where the shelves are empty to it's not empty and there's high prices. 
So it appears that I am mistaken as an empirical matter. So I think this is, I'd like to do experiments about this and see if I can find out more about it. You notice economists, what's the main, the first assumptions people make about economists? They're self-interested and rational. Well, self-interest is consistent with anything. It's a tautology. If I want it, it's, it's, it, that's what I want. Rational means that I understand the, the cause-effect relationships around me. So when I ask economists, why did the people clap? Guess what they said? Hmm. Oh, people are irrational. People are irrational. So the when are people irrational? It's when they disagree with economists. I wonder if economists shouldn't think a little more about this. Right. This this is not the way people think. 70% of people in North Carolina actually prefer price gouging, laws against price gouging. And remember the, the problem for my example, and it took me five years to understand this, the problem for my example, those people standing in line, if you had asked them, should there be a law against price gouging, they clearly would have said yes, hmm. even though they were waiting in line to buy ice. So this is a really complicated moral and psychological question. Economists oversimplify it by saying price gouging laws are illogical or irrational. They're not. We actually have these deep moral intuitions. Now, I think as a matter of public policy, we don't have to act on those sort of tribal memories. We should actually care about the poor. Right. And the, 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 the question is, the real clincher is, why was the price of ice $11? And the answer is... Police were arresting people who tried to sell ice. If there had been no price gouging law, the price of ice would have been 2 or $3 already. Right. So the only reason the price was high in the first place was that these were contraband goods, just like you're trying to buy weed or something, because this is against the law. Why would you want to make it against the law for someone to sell ice to a willing buyer? The bootleg and ice became a profitable industry and then yes. <laughs> basically across state line. So I'd like to see a Smokey and the Bandit remake of that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there is ultimately there is an economic way of thinking about it, as you said, about these people clapping, though, right? I guess their preference and the level of enjoyment that they got out of seeing these rednecks, as you turn them, get, yeah. get arrested uh, was greater than their preference to have ice in that moment. I can draw indifference curves. There, there's perfectly rational indifference curves between those two considerations that would lead people to act in that way. So economists need to be careful when we say that's not rational. That's not true. We just disagree. Right. Yeah. I was actually watching um, a, a lecture. I think David Friedman was giving the lecture. He was talking about rationality and how you have to, just as you were saying, you have to be careful with that term. And uh, the, 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 the joke, well, at least his joke as far as David Friedman is concerned, is he said, like, he likes to use the example of uh, what do you say if someone's standing on their head and holding a hundred dollar bill between their toes that's on fire? Do you say they're irrational? He's like, no, they're doing that because they want to. Yeah, they must. And you're right. For David, that's the equivalent of a joke. <laughs> well, and I think on that note, Mike, we can, we can wrap it up. Uh, we, we've talked about a lot. Uh, let's bring it full circle and put a fine our point on our exploration of the question. As you know, in these episodes, I like to give the guests the final word. Uh, let me ask you, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to here on whether price gouging is wrong? If we could sum it up and, and, and tie a finer bow on that. We need to be concerned about public policy and public policy needs to take recognition of all the mechanisms by which we are able to serve each other. In an emergency, we're precisely in the setting where the capacity of the state to serve everyone is going to fall short. So 
I am not trying to make a natural rights defense of markets that the state doesn't have the right to regulate markets. My claim is we should try to have a mixed system that does the best job of serving people in all sorts of different situations. The advantage of markets are that you have a decentralized response that are locally tailored. So having a, a top-down centralized solution is always going to make it difficult. The price mechanism gives the three signals of consumers should buy less, producers should make more, entrepreneurs should make substitutes. However, there is a principle that limits the applicability of my claim about prices, and that is the supply elasticity and the existence of another form of rationing. So I believe that we are in a situation for medical supplies in hospitals in large cities and pretty soon for food and water, uh, you know, clean water, uh, things that are desperately needed by the very poor in the large cities. I believe that both of those things are going to be rationed by the state in a way that does not involve markets. And there probably is not an alternative because my recommendation is being governed by a principle, not an ideology. My principle is markets are usually better able to serve the general population than the state is. But we need a mixed system, and it's going to take some imagination to work that out. Ideological extremes are not the way to approach this. We need pragmatism. Excellent. I think we'll leave it there. Mike, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. It was a pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 